just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. How do we assess the validity of ERA, and how do we project it? I'll ask Alex Chamberlain, a pitching analyst and writer from Rotographs, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 24th. It's show number 20 of the 2020 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and on opening weekend, we have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have a feature interview with pitching analyst Alex Chamberlain from Rotographs discussing ERA estimators from the past, in the present, and on into the future, including the development of new, more accurate tools to project ERA. Alex also has his boons and mains to get us started for our first fab weekend in many leagues. As if that weren't enough of a show, we also have our Market Watch Player News reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including Gavin Lux, the closer situations of St. Louis, Colorado, and Washington, some other NL player news, and we'll have a quick chat about fanless baseball. And Ray Murphy will be by with news from the American League, including Mike Trout, Franchi Cordero, the Seattle bullpen, and other news from the junior circuit. We'll also have our commentaries from expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Hay Taxi, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at San Diego outfielder Edward Olivares. And in Extra Innings, I'll be talking in meter about opening days. That's with a Z, or a Z if you're living in the U.S. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It's opening day. we got to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this opening day weekend, Friday full edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Alex Chamberlain from Rotographs. Alex Chamberlain, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been a while. Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me back, Patrick. Appreciate it. Well, I really enjoyed our last uh, opportunity to talk, so I'm really looking forward to this one as well. And I'm sure everybody who listens to Baseball HQ Radio is equally looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Before we talk about that, have you been doing any drafting in July? No. No. I think I'm, I think I'm among the, uh, the, the scarce few who have just kind of thrown their hands up and said, it is what it is. Um, you know, I invested a lot. Of, I invested a lot of time this preseason. I had a, a kind of like a down year. It was a decent year, but it was a down year for me last year. And I told myself, I'm going to like put my nose to the grindstone. I'm going to draft like crazy. I'm going to go hard. And then all that work is mostly for not. And I was like, I'm a little bit tired. It's fine. I'll just, you know, this season might be a lost season anyway. Just write out the teams that I have and we'll see how it goes. So how, how many teams had you drafted in the uh, early going in March? Uh, I mean, I'm not like the guys who have 30, 40, 50 teams, but I, I had close to a dozen, uh, and I, you know, I lost probably 75% of those, at least the, the public ones. Um, so 
it's yeah you know it just is a little frustrating um especially when you think a couple of them could be really good i mean hopefully all of them are good but just realistically speaking you you know that you've drafted two or three really solid ones that could be overall contenders and and you lose that and it's just it's a little bit defeating but um some people bounce back and i just said you know it's all right we'll just wait till next year so yeah and there's other stuff to do in the meantime i had a team that i drafted in the raz slam league it's a, a points league are you in that league yeah I, the few that stuck around because they didn't undo it. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, I when I, when I got into it, I I really took a highly unorthodox approach, and I was really looking forward to seeing if the way I had thought about it was correct. And then it all falls apart. And I mean, we're going to play it out, but at sixty games, even if you do well or even if you do poorly, you can you can chalk it up to just the natural variation of such a short run. It takes a lot of the fun out of it. <laughs> Either it's going to be no fun or too much fun, but yes, it's going to be wild regardless. So for those who are still thinking of drafting, do you think there's any point in adjusting their approach from what they did in March to what they should do in July? If you were drafting a team, would you be doing it any differently? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's it's only wise to be paying attention to the news, and it's really coming down to how teams are going to be using their pitchers, I think. I think there's going to be... Um, you know, hitters will probably be the same. I think there's some movement maybe for the guys who are on like the, the taxi squads or whatever. Um, maybe some guys who are in the fringes of being platoon bats or, or, or prospects who are about to be promoted who might see some more time in order to give some breaks to the guys who might be playing literally every day for about 60 days. Um, and it's the hitters aren't, yeah, it's the hitters I'm not as concerned about as much as the pitchers who, depending on your team, they're either going to have them go hard and try to treat it like a regular season throw 100 pitches or they're going to do you know it's going to be the opener strategy um kind of like exacerbated a little bit and, and all sorts of like maybe even like six seven eight man rotations i mean it really it's really team dependent it's it's very contextual but the pitches are being affected the most and i think that should really influence how you're changing your values irrespective of the fact that anyone could get covid or, or already have covid so um but just it, you know ignoring the illness aspect of it and just thinking about uh just thinking about um the the length of the season and, and kind of like how everyone's being utilized I, i'm trying to shuffle my pitching ranks and it's, it's difficult because people have different perspectives about it too there's a school of thought that i've been hearing doing these interviews and talking to people on twitter and and talking to people just in my regular communications that i have with guys i play in leagues with and stuff and there's a seems to be a difference of opinion about whether or not prospects should be and young players in general should be raised up or cut back. And it all has to kind of do with what is a manager going to do if somebody gets into a slump, goes, goes, you know, Oh, for his first 10 games or something like that. And my theory is that if you're Mike Trout or if you're, you know, Christian Yelich, they're just, they're going to ride with you. You know, they haven't really got any choice, but if you're some right. guy who's like a first or second year player, maybe one of those bubble guys, the leash might be pretty short, and that could be a, like a Wally Pip kind of situation for whoever, whoever's Lou Gehrig and steps in and, and has all of a sudden four good games, might end up playing 40 games, you know, just because they, the manager doesn't want to take any chances with, given the real short time frame involved. Yeah, I think there's going to be, we're going to see some biases exposed pretty starkly for the folks who are not part of the, the hot hand crowd, but, um, you know, I think even managers who may uh, may not believe in the hot hand will feel that pressure of you know we don't have time to spare 
you know, if there's a guy slumping and it doesn't appear like he's going to turn it around, even though there's, it's impossible to predict when a slump's going to end or something, you know, it's, it can be just random fluctuation, but you know, you, you feel that pressure to like maybe right to, to, to swap out a guy who, whose leash is pretty short for someone else to give them uh, a chance to, to make an impact in this, this kind of this short season. All that said, I was pretty aggressive I, in talking about guys like, uh, I have shares of Nate Pearson, and I'm pretty glad I do because I think a team like Toronto, which is not super deep in pitching, he seems to have a chance to fight his way into the rotation fairly quickly giving, given the quality of the 3-4-5 guys, number 6 guy or whatever, in that rotation. And there's all kinds of guys like that sprinkled throughout baseball. And I wonder if maybe that's truer of pitchers than it is of hitters. What do you think? Probably. Um, yeah, I, I would say so, but I, I don't have a strong opinion on it, if I'm being honest. Well, we met a couple of years ago at First Pitch Arizona. You were doing a uh, presentation on pitching, and it was fascinating and super interesting, and I've been following you ever since really closely. And this year, you recently ran a three-part series at Rotographs about ERA estimators uh, adapted from a presentation you gave, I guess, at PitchCon? Right, right, yeah. PitcherList had a an online present or a series of presentations, kind of a, a an online conference, like a four day conference to raise money for charity. And I had a one hour presentation about ERA estimators, and it was just kind of like a high level, um, just kind of like a high level overview of what ERA ERA excuse me ERA estimators are and what they do. Um, and in light of that presentation, I wanted to like maybe you know put that uh, information on paper, so to speak, on digital paper, and have um, a series of posts that kind of um, uh, recapped all of that information and then expanded on some of those um, those bullet points that I didn't have time to expand on um, during the, the presentation. Well, I'm going to expect most of our listeners know what uh, ERA estimators are, but maybe you could quickly just give us a definition of what you mean by the term ERA estimators before we start talking. Sure. About them. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, ERA obviously is one of the the foundational metrics to measure pitcher performance, um, earned runs per nine innings, uh, effectively. Um, ERA estimators are <clears throat> a kind of advanced metric um, that try to use pitcher skills to estimate what uh, a pitcher's ERA should have been. Uh, the, that's the estimator portion. So um, there are three kind of main ones, um, FIP, XFIP, and Sierra. Um, and I know that we'll probably get into those in a second, but those are they're, they're kind of uh, the, the 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 main pieces of how we've begun to construct our understanding of of pitching performance, dating back to you know 15, 20 years ago when when all this research was really ramping up. The kind of the 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 the, uh, the genesis of the sabermetric movement. Well, let's start with FIP. Uh, give us a brief explanation of what FIP is and how it's constructed. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so FIP um, that stands for fielding independent pitching, and um, the fielding independent portion of it kind of is based on Voros McCracken's research on what it, what can and can't be controlled from a batting average standpoint. We've all heard of batting average on balls in play, or at least most of us have, I'm sure. Um, and the the kind of the original tenet of BABIP is that um, really like a a pitcher or a hitter does not have a lot of control over their BABIP. And I should just interject and say over time we've we've come to learn that that's not necessarily true, but just from a, a very kind of like general standpoint for, for most people who, or for most hitters and most pitchers who don't really um, kind of swing to either extreme, like being extremely good or extremely bad, 
a lot of a lot of performance kind of centers around the league average of 300 the batting average on balls in play of 300 and so FIP kind of um, it, it embraces that assumption and says um, BABIP is basically um, not controllable the only things that are controllable are strikeouts walks and home runs um, and so even if you don't understand really like what the 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 algorithm or the the equation of of FIP represents if you just understand kind of the components of it that that only strikeouts, walks, and home runs are a skill, um, you can kind of understand the, the theoretical basis of what it's trying to present, especially if you're comparing it to, to other estimators that have different assumptions uh, in them. And so I think, um, again, to, to say that, uh, just again, to kind of elaborate um, home runs, being a skill, I think we can all agree at this point, having learned a lot about the game, that that's not really true. Um, there is some truth to it, but it's not wholly true, and that's why it's important to expand upon that um, in different ways. Um, and that's what XFIP is for, which I know um, is coming up next here. Yeah, we'll be, and we'll be talking about the uh, the difference between home runs and other kinds of indications of uh, giving up solid contact uh, a little later on in our talk. But yeah, you mentioned expected FIP, so this is a, a refinement of FIP, I'm going to guess. Yeah, and so it's 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 the same kind of structure, it's the same assumptions, but instead of using home runs as an indicator of skill, so to speak, we use fly balls instead. And so um, instead of, and I, I like to refer to this as like a controllable trait or, or an ownable skill. And so instead of pitchers owning the skill of how many home runs they allow, we, we've come to learn over time that that's actually a pretty lucky, a, a pretty luck-based skill. Uh, so to speak, I guess it's not really a skill at all if it's luck based. Um, uh, but with that in mind, um, instead of looking at home runs, we can just look at fly balls. And and with that idea, you know, we look at how many fly balls a a pitcher allows, and then we assume a certain amount of those will become home runs. And so, um, again, there's 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 kind of two schools of thought, like you mentioned. And I, I think the the truth is probably somewhere in between because I don't think home runs are are purely luck. I think we've seen a lot of pitchers, especially recently, have a pretty extreme difficulty with the home runs they allow, and it's not related to the park that they're in or not related to the amount of fly balls that they allow. It's truly an issue with the way that they pitch, and so um, we have these kind of two these two extremes. Not I don't want to call them extremes, but two endpoints. We have one that treats home runs as skill, and one that treats fly balls as skill, and probably the truth is somewhere in the middle, and so. Uh, you know, it, it might be nice to use both of them. You know, I don't think one is necessarily superior to the other when we're talking about pitcher performance, because I think, you know, based on how we want to use these and how we want to describe performance, there's definitely different ways of interpreting things. And I don't want to necessarily attribute one having more um, uh, validity than the other. And finally, the big three uh, also includes Skill Interactive ERA, which is well known by its acronym, Sierra. Right, right, yeah. So Sierra is the third one, and I think people might think that this is um, this is maybe the most effective of the ERA estimators. I think it really matter. It really depends on who you're asking. And so um, Sierra was probably it wasn't probably it was the one that was uh, developed most recently, and that takes um, these components, these the the strikeouts and the walks and the fly balls, these these things that we're treating as pitcher skills and um, as the name says, that we're interacting them. And so as opposed to just saying strikeouts occur in a vacuum and walks occur in a vacuum and fly balls occur in a vacuum, 
none of that is necessarily true. I think everything that happens in a game kind of is is dependent upon the thing that precedes it, and there, there's all there's just a tangled web of of cause and effect that's happening every game and, and and every pitch. And so, basically, what this estimator does is it interacts them to make sure that we are considering every kind of like different possibility and combination of strikeouts and walks and fly balls and have a better more holistic understanding of era that way um from like a a, a research or or economic econometric standpoint um which are big words but they're not that important um uh you know sierra sounds like it's the one that is maybe the most robust and i you know i like it the most for its theoretical kind of underpinnings but at the same time it actually doesn't make xfip that much better which is really impressive like it's a, it's a, a a pretty big testament to the original research that just looked at three very simple variables strikeouts walks and fly balls and captured so much of pitching skill just using those and, and trying to make it any more complicated we really aren't um gleaning that much additional value from it it's actually really interesting um but we we have some we have some discussion in my in my further post that look at how we are trying to expand on it um but we do see spoiler alert that we we're still at a point where um we have a lot of we have a lot of room for growth at this point in the first article in the series you talked about these three original estimators uh fip xfip and sierra as both descriptive and predictive. And I think this is a key point in the whole series, and it's a really a key point that people need to keep in mind whenever they think about all the metrics that are available out there because there's a fairly significant difference. Could you explain the difference and why it matters? A descriptive metric is something that does a good job of um, describing, of course, uh, what already happened. Uh, and a predictive metric, of course, is something that is helpful uh, in predicting future performance, so something that has not happened. And each of these three, FIP, XFIP, and Sierra, they all have different uh, ca capacity to describe and predict performance. And um, there's there's effectively a scale. It's FIP um, is more descriptive and, and less predictive. Uh, whereas XFIP and Sierra are, are less descriptive of current performance and more predictive of future performance. And I think that makes sense when we really think about it. If we're talking about um, home runs being a skill versus fly balls being a skill, um, and we're finding more and more that home runs are lucky, we should we should realize that FIP, which measures home runs as skill, will be more apt to describe what already happened because we saw those home runs happen as opposed to going forward where we should just be looking at the rate of fly balls that are, that are being allowed. And I think I just made it more complicated by describing that. But what I want to get to is, regardless of which one you use, all three of them are pretty bad um, predictively, which is, it's not sad. It's the best we can do, or, or not necessarily the best, but for a long time, it was the best we could do. And they really don't do a great job of predicting ERA performance, which kind of got my gears turning a little bit. I've been so gung-ho about using XFIP or Sierra over FIP, um, FIP being the weaker one predictively, but if they're, if they're all so bad at predicting ERA, then maybe it's, it's really not so bad to use the one that is also most descriptive and, and to really understand what happened in the previous year, especially if there's truly no 
I don't want to say no benefit, but but very little benefit at trying to predict the future. It's really beneficial to know what happened in the past and and make an educated guess about how things will go moving forward. Um, again, I wouldn't rely solely on one. If I had to give a recommendation, I'd rely on all three of them. And I, I think you could you could come up with a, a blend of them to to have a superior understanding of of pitcher skill and performance moving forward. Um, but I I you know. I th again, I think for a while I would have said that Sierra or XFIP is the best one, and I, I'm reticent to say that now because I, it just none of them provide a serviceable edge to any fantasy player. Um, so I don't think there's any kind of um, like moral or like um, intellectual high ground for taking one over the other. Something you said interested me because it, it kind of harkens back to what, how Baseball HQ has always dealt with. He, it has an expected ERA metric as well, and it's you know roughly descriptive in the same ballpark, you should forgive the expression, as these other three. And it's been tweaked over the years as we get access to these uh, better metrics and so forth. But the way that Baseball HQ has always told its subscribers to use expected ERA, which is a backward-looking descriptive metric, is... Ignore all the pitchers who are, you know, relatively close to their expected ERA in year one. What you're looking for is outliers or guys who have big gaps between their expected ERA and their actual ERA because a guy who underperformed is going to have a bet figures to bounce back closer to his um, his estimator, and a guy who was worse is, is likely to get better. So, is there some dis predictive value even in a mostly descriptive metric? in that way i think so i think so I, I don't i haven't really seen a lot of research necessarily um that looks specifically at that but I, you know we we see anecdotal evidence of that year in and year out of guys who really they just right they they either overperform or underperform their estimators um by, by pretty significant margins and the next year we see them kind of come back to earth whether it's for better or for worse and there there are certain guys that consistently do not perform to their ERA, ERA estimators. And that kind of begs a different question of how do we really capture the value surrounding those guys who kind of consistently betray what these estimators are trying to communicate. But with that in mind, or, you know, kind of like irrespective of that, um, yeah, I, I mean, that's one of the classic ways of using this is you really aren't nitpicking the guy who has a 3.2 ERA, but a 3.4 FIP and XFIP. You want to look at the guy who has a, a 3.8 FIP, but a, a 4.8 ERA, uh, you know, 3.8 FIP, XFIP, whatever, 4.8 ERA. And the, that's the guy where you're looking and saying, this is a pretty obvious situation where, you know, regardless of how, regardless of how well these estimators are describing his performance, it's almost certain that he's going to move much more closely to that than he currently is. And having said that, as you mentioned, there are still those outliers who underperform in year one, go on to underperform in year two and the, and yeah well that's what makes it a game right that's what makes it interesting because if it was yeah, yeah. ironclad we'd all just it'd be like betting a horse race that will already run alex chamberlain is a pitching analyst and writer at rotographs which is part of the Fangraphs website and alex will be back a couple more times during this podcast but coming up it's our market watch reports on player news from the national league and the american league nick and ray are on the way next on baseball hq radio Pitches a high fly ball to right deep. Going back is Tarasco to the warning track. To the wall, he's under it now. And it's taken away from him by a fan. And they're going to call it a home run. I can't believe it. Pitching Garcia is calling it a home run. And Tarasco is out to argue. A terrible call by Richie Garcia. It's all. 
Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League. And leading off, it's the National League report and our old friend, Baseball HQ pitcher matchups analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Really big week for news here with the, uh, of course, opening day. Very exciting for uh, all baseball fans and fantasy baseball players everywhere. But in the meantime, there's a whole lot of stuff going on. And I'd like to start with the uh, St. Louis Cardinals bullpen. Uh, there was, uh, They had their closer leave. They opted out of the season, Jordan Hicks. And then uh, all of a sudden, it was a wide open uh, opportunity. And of all the people that they chose, given the choices they had, um, Relief pitcher Kwang Hyun Kim is expected to serve as the primary option at closer. He's a left-hander. He has no closing experience, so of course, why wouldn't you choose him? <laughs> Phil Hertz has the uh, update at Baseball HQ's playing time today. What's the story here? Well, you know, the the uh, Cardinals have reported they're going to use Kim as a closer. They were originally thought Carlos Martinez might, uh, uh, might be the closer, but when he became the starter, that bumped Kim out of the rotation. So uh, Kim appears headed for a uh, robust role in the bullpen to start the season at least. Um, Never had a save in Korea, but was outstanding in spring training. So for now, we're going to assume that uh, Giovanni Gallegos will get a shot at closing once he's ready. Uh, Keep in mind, however, that Gallegos has been used, uh, also has not been used as a closer in his Major League Baseball career, has one save. Uh, Similarly, Ryan Helsley, who some had expected to be the closer, uh, has no saves and only one hold in his career. So the, uh, the the Cardinals' bullpen situation is up in the air. Kim will certainly get a chance to uh, to start the job and run with it, uh, and then we'll see where it goes from there. I'm curious what you think because he was originally thought of as a possible starter, and so we've actually cut his playing time by about 5% to reflect the loss of innings, but a 20% increase in his saves, uh, does that more than make up for it in the short season, or would you rather have a starter? But you know, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard to tell. If we we had projected Kim with a fairly decent ERA and a decent WHIP, three point seven nine ERA, one point three nine WHIP, so um, but only a four point four nine xERA. So uh, we just have to wait a while and see how this guy does. I mean, we're talking about a guy coming over from Korea who is uh, is thirty two years old, a left hander, uh, and we don't know much about him. So we'll have to see how he adapts to Major League Baseball and in a short season. Uh, if he's got a pitch that uh, that the that the major leaguers have trouble hitting, which he sort of showed that he had in spring training, um, you know who knows? Uh, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I, I drafted him on one team because it looked like he we we had some interesting projections on him, but an 85 BPV we say is not high enough for a full time closer. So uh, we'll have to see how this thing plays out. Mind you, uh, pro- pro- projecting uh, base performance values is is a is a very dodgy prospect for a guy who has no major league background. We're kind of trying to build equivalents from Japanese league baseball, and it's tough to make those kind of assessments and then project further to project them into a new season is even more difficult because there's you know certain degrees of which metrics stick with a player from season to season, which ones vary from season to season. So, uh, yeah, this is a very uh, fluctuating uh, situation here in St. Louis, not to mention the fact that they have other options, as you mentioned, with Gallegos and maybe Helsley once they come back from injury. So uh, it, this remains to be seen. If you own Kim, as you and I both do, it sounds like good news, but the good news may not last as long as we might like. Right, absolutely. 
Staying in the bullpens, Colorado Rockies uh, relief pitcher was Scott Oberg was supposed to be the closer for the Rocks this year, and he's going to start the season on the IL because he's got a back problem. Uh, Jock Thompson covers the Rockies for playing time today. Um, dare I ask, is Wade Davis and his 865 ERA back in the running? Well, I, you know, Oberg had been our, our pick, but Davis was the closer last year, and uh, no word as to how serious Oberg's injury is. Uh, so at this point, we're being kind of conservative, just cutting his playing time by uh, by 1%. But um, it's going to be a, probably a worse situation than you've got in in, uh, in St. Louis. Uh, Oberg could, could close when he comes back. Jairo Diaz is a possibility. Carlos Estevez is a possibility. Uh, Wade Davis certainly may get a shot. Um who knows? But uh, it's going to be a situation worth monitoring to see if any one of these guys can grab the job and hang on to it. I remember talking with Doug Dennis uh, earlier this year, and he thought Jairo Diaz was the black sheep, in, or the black sheep, the dark horse. If we're going to use our uh, animal metaphors, we might as well get them right. Uh, Jairo Diaz was the, the, the dark horse in Colorado for possible getting some saves and when we talk about a playing loss of minus one percent as you mentioned for Scott Oberg that's not one percent of his playing time that's one percent of all the available innings that we had projected he now has one percent less of all those innings right yes and uh, you know and the thing with Jairo Diaz at the moment is he is he has tested positive for uh for COVID uh and not clear how much time he'll need to recover so he is currently out indefinitely uh and so that's another guy who can't start the season, at least in the bullpen. So I guess that leaves them with with Davis and Estevez. And chances are, uh, in a lot of leagues, Carlos Estevez will be available or would have been available at the start of the year for your first fab run. Keep, take a look at him, at least, is, uh, is the advice I would give. Uh, finally, again in the bullpen, but this time in Washington, uh, we still staying in the bullpens, Nick, uh, we talked last week a little bit about Will Harris and Washington in that uh, Nationals bullpen, but Alan DeLeonardis in playing time tomorrow uh, weighed in with a pretty deep analysis of the Nationals for his National League East coverage. What does Alan DeLeonardis say about the uh, Will Harris possibility in Washington, given the options? Well, at this point, you know, he says that some, consider- some combination we know of Sean Doolittle, Daniel Hudson, and Will Harris are going to get the saves probably in Washington. Doolittle's coming off a year that saw some of the weak of his career, uh, swinging strike rate of 12.8%, uh, first pitch strike rate of 67%, uh, velocity 93.5, uh, control 2.3, all heading in the wrong direction, and the results were really pedestrian by his own uh, previously very strong standards of 4.05 ERA, 4.95 XERA, um, 29 saves and 60 innings pitched. And so, two positive. Firstly, Doolittle managed to stay relatively healthy. I uh, was only on the IL for 15 days uh, last year with, with tendonitis in his right knee. And uh, highest in his pitch total since 2014. And secondly, behind Doolittle, uh, because Doolittle is, is presumably expected to give way to Hudson in certain situations, he may get lucky and qualify for an extra win here or there. So Doolittle certainly is a possibility. Uh, Hudson was far from dominant in 2019. Uh, 83 BPV is barely closer worthy. Uh, 8.8 DOM, uh, 10.6% swinging strike rate, don't really inspire much confidence, and a 4.81 XERA, less impressive than uh, his 2.47 ERA. So those are the two guys at the moment ahead of Will Harris. Harris, skills-wise, is the best of the bunch. Since 2012, he's never posted a BPB lower than 107. Over the past four seasons, 
Uh, BPVs have been 154, 174, 151, 144. Swinging strike breaks would support a higher DOM than he currently gets. What sets him apart from the other two saves people are superior control, a career 2.3 control mark, 4.1 command, and a 50% ground ball rate. So, if we're following baseball HQ metrics, Harris is certainly the guy who should get the, get the ball with the game on the line. But manager Davey Martinez may decide to use Harris earlier than the save situation if he's in a situation in the eighth inning, for example, with guys on base and uh, and, and he doesn't really he needs the stopper then instead of the ninth inning. So it'll be interesting to see how Harris gets used. Uh, he may not wind up being a full-time closer, and that could, of course, hurt his value in Roto Leagues. But uh, Harris could be one of the better bets out there if you're playing in a save plus hold leagues. I don't know about you, Nick, but uh, I was really surprised at the news out of Los Angeles that they had optioned Gavin Lux, who actually started last year, didn't look uh, at all out of place at second base, but the uh, Dodgers have decided to go in a different direction. Uh, Joe Pitleski covers the Dodgers as part of his playing time tomorrow coverage of the National League West. What's going on with Gavin Lux? Yeah, I was surprised, too, I, as uh, as did uh, lots of folks. I had him uh, pick, penciled into my lineup at second base to start the year, and what Lux is 22 years old. He arrived at camp late, uh, started out very slowly this spring, uh, was sent down to the farm on Tuesday because he was performing slowly in camp. Uh, and, you know, all you can do at this point, he's a 22-year-old. He wasn't apparently ready yet. And so the Dodgers have other options. Uh, Enrique Hernandez played, has played everywhere on the diamond except catcher last season, logged more games at second base than anywhere else. And despite a down year, uh, BPV dropped 47, minus 47 from 2018 to 2019. There are some positive indicators. Uh, he makes good contact, uh, 79% career contact against left-handers, uh, average double-digit walk late three of the past four seasons, a power dip to league average levels last season, started the Dodgers' first game, batted in five runs, hit a home run. So uh, Hernandez uh, certainly was uh, the right choice for the opener. Uh, Chris Taylor also could get some looks or second base early on. 12 homers, 8 stolen bases, and 366 at-bats last season. Uh, Taylor took advantage of a solid line drive stroke, 37%, and maintained above-average speed marks. So, uh, you know, they've got two good guys to play second base, Hernandez and Taylor, and Lux is going to have to, to make an impression. Uh, this is a team that wants to win the World Series, and they're not going to put a guy in there just because he's got a lot of hype. Neither Hernandez nor Taylor's really a wizard with the glove out there, but I imagine the Dodgers will be willing to look the other way if either of them gets off to a hot start. You mentioned Hernandez, four for five on opening night on Thursday. I'm interested about Chris Taylor because uh, I had him in a couple of teams and uh, I was thinking he might play all over the diamond and then you start thinking, well... You, you read about Mookie Betts getting the long-term deal, and of course he was going to play anyway. They're moving uh, Bellinger to center field, so the only place Chris Taylor could play would be left field, and that was pretty clogged up as well. So maybe Chris Taylor's stock rises a little bit, but I, I'm still sort of not really super confident about his prospects. Yeah, I think I would agree. At this point, probably uh, Hernandez and Taylor might make up a, a kind of platoon at second base, uh, until Lux begins to show that he's that he's ready, uh, but as you said, their their defense is going to be average at best uh, in that position.
Moving along, uh, some good news in Atlanta. Freddie Freeman, who was rumored to be, uh, or actually reported to be, still suffering from some after effects of a COVID infection, uh, was not expected to start the season. We reduced his playing time accordingly. And now, all of a sudden, kind of out of left field, here comes Freddie Freeman. He's on the active roster, and he's apparently ready to go. Yeah, he apparently uh, appears to be fully recovered. Uh, we restored the playing time we took away from him. Um uh, not restored all of it, allowing for the possibility that he'll need a few more days off than usual. But uh, it appears now that Freddie Freeman is ready to go, and that's certainly good news for for uh, the Braves and good news for his owners. In New York, bad news for the Mets. Uh, Marcus Stroman, who is expected to be an important part of a pretty strong pitching rotation, has a left calf injury. He's gone to the IL with no really schedule for a for a return, Phil Hertz covers the Mets for playing time today. What's the story there? Yeah, it's, it's supposedly a tear in his calf, which sounds pretty serious to me. Uh, they're they're saying he's kind of week to week. He will not need surgery. Um, but as of this writing, it's not clear who's going to replace him in the Mets rotation. Walter Lockett, one of the prime candidates to join the rotation in the event of an injury, landed on the IL ahead of Stroman, so he's not a consideration at the moment. Uh, former first-rounder David Peterson, also a possibility, but he hasn't pitched above double-A and isn't on the 40-man roster. Uh, another possibility is Corey Oswalt, made 12 starts for the Mets in 2018, but a 4.82 XERA doesn't, uh, doesn't inspire a lot of confidence. Uh, some have speculated they might move Seth Lugo into the rotation, uh, but Mets manager uh, Louis Rojas says that's not under consideration. So right now we're giving Marcus Stroman a loss in playing time, but not giving anyone else a gain in playing time. So that's a very up-in-the-air situation. We'll have to see uh, who the Mets call on as they reach a point where they need that, that pitcher in the rotation. And finally, Nick, uh, in Arizona, the Diamondbacks named uh, right-hander Merrill Kelly as their number 5 starter. That's according to manager Tori Lovello in the local media. Uh, what happens in the rotation now is, as seems to solidify what's going on in Phoenix? Yeah, once Mike Leake opted out of the season, uh, Kelly became the, the favorite to enter the rotation, and that, that's what has happened at the moment. Whether he'll hold on to that role really remains to be seen. Um, Kelly is a 30-year-old uh, Major League rookie in 2019, uh, more of an innings eater than, uh, than an ace, over 32 starts, compiled a 4.69 XDRA, 84 BPV. Uh, his main competition for the last spot was Alex Young, who split 2019 between the Diamondbacks and AAA Reno. So uh, on the surface, he was a bit better than Kelly. Uh, 3.56 ERA, almost a run better than Kelly's. Uh, Skill-wise, though, remarkably similar. Uh, Young's XERA was 4.53. BPV was 85. So even their dom and command were almost the same. So you've got Merrill Kelly starting in the rotation. Leash will likely be short. Uh, Young is not necessarily going to be able to do much better. Uh, this is what we call, I think, a developing situation. All right, Nick, uh, before I let you go, uh, opening, di- uh, opening day weekend or opening day week, whatever we want to call this, is underway. Uh, seen a little bit of baseball, and I'm just curious what you think about baseball without fans, how, uh, how impactful that is on how you enjoy the game. Yeah, you know, I, that's an interesting question. Uh, I certainly enjoyed the game last night, maybe because I haven't seen any baseball in a long time. Not having the fans there makes a difference. It's going to make a difference in how revved up sometimes some of these teams are. Um, it may make a difference in the uh, – it may make uh, less of a home field advantage because the fans won't be there screaming for the home team. Uh, 
but you know, I think we're all glad to have baseball back. Um, what, what do you think the the uh, the expanded uh, playoff situation is going to mean, however, in this situation? Well, I think they expanded the playoffs because they don't have to pay the players during the playoffs. So the the more games they can get in playoff baseball and the fewer games they can get in uh, regular season baseball means they're saving a fortune on salaries. And presumably, I guess they're hoping that the uh, the fact that it's a playoff tournament maybe boosts interest a little more because they're going to be competing in short order with the uh, NBA, whose playoffs are going to start uh at roughly the same time, you've got the NHL for people who are in the north of the U.S. and across all across Canada. There's a lot of competition and the NFL looming on the horizon as well. So uh, I think that the reason that they expanded the playoffs was to try to maintain interest during a very tough time to maintain interest because, you know, it's weird. But for all these months, we've been without any kind of sports except foreign soccer and, and guys punching each other in the face in a chicken coop. And all of a sudden now we're just, we've got more sports than we know what to do with. And baseball, because it's a sort of declining sport anyway, in terms of uh, popular appeal, is trying to figure out ways to maintain its relevance in a, what has gone from being a completely empty situation to one that's extremely competitive. Yeah, very definitely. I, you know, the thing that, that I think could make it interesting and maybe interesting for, for fantasy players is that with, with expanded playoffs and a short season, uh, it might not take much to get into the playoffs. So if the Orioles have a 10-game winning streak, do they actually have a shot at making the playoffs? You know, that's the kind of question you have to ask. And uh, it may mean that fewer teams wind up tanking early on in the season because they've got a real shot at doing something if they can put a few wins together. So I think it makes things perhaps more interesting, especially during the short season. I agree, but I wonder if if that's a good kind of interesting. You know, it, it seems fairly haphazard to me. And one of the one of the great things about baseball is even in a shortened season, there's a lot longer of a regular season than there is in the other sports. And uh, so the one of the calling cards of the game has been we settle who's the best team by playing a lot of games. And then only the elite get into the playoffs. And they've been watering that down with wildcard games and, and expanding the playoffs during normal years already. And now all of a sudden they say, you know, we're going to adopt the NBA NHL model where half, more than half of the teams are going to get into the playoff pool. I don't know. To me, it, in a certain way, it kind of devalues something about the sport. And I wonder next year, assuming we get back to normalcy and there's a 162-game season, do you think they're going to give back those playoff games? I wonder. Yeah, it's interesting. But that'll be interesting to see whether what will happen back in a full season as to how all of that will take place. And certainly this year, when they're revenue strapped, it makes sense to uh, to do that and have uh, have the extra TV revenue and all of that kind of thing. But as you say, going back to a full season, hopefully next year, um, maybe they won't hold this kind of a playoff uh, situation. And if all the uh, teams that sneak in at the end lose in the first round, that might be, uh, you know, it, it, that may be the telling the telling factor. Uh, do any of these teams that sneak in on the end uh, go anywhere in the playoffs? Uh, and that might help make their decision one way or the other. Even worse, perhaps, suppose the Orioles or Miami or somebody sneaks into that last playoff spot with, like you said, maybe they have a miraculous nine-game winning streak, which, which in a 60-game context is like a 30-game winning streak in, in a regular season. And they make the playoffs and squeak in and then all of a sudden win a couple of rounds and knock off you know, the uh, Yankees and knock off uh, perhaps Cleveland or uh, Minnesota, whoever comes out of the Central there. Uh, in other words, there's a possibility because it's a very short short uh, 
playoff that a team like that could get on another heater and all of a sudden find themselves in the World Series, you know, on the basis of a, of a sub-500 record or a near-500 record and clearly not a good team. You know, the, I think this is fraught with problems. And the other problem, I think, Nick, is when the next CBA comes up, if the owners have decided to keep the expanded playoff system in the future, you can bet that the players are going to push back and they're going to say, look, we recognize what you're doing here. You're asking us to play a longer and longer season and there's nothing in it for us. As of the last day of the regular season, our paychecks stop. Now there's money going into the pension fund from the playoff agreement in, in past CBAs, but I think you know you don't have to be a, a financial genius to realize that the more playoff games there are there's a lot of revenue at stake and the players are not as individuals earning any of it and i don't think that's going to sit well with them no i don't think it will sit well with them at all so it will be interesting to see how all of this develops but can you imagine a baltimore miami world series uh, yeah, I can actually, and it would probably be super interesting because of all the arguments and, gosh, Twitter would break probably from everybody uh, <laughs> yelling about it and what have you. You know, it, it it it's a tough situation. I know because of the pandemic and all of these other things for all the sports to figure out. And I guess as fans and as fantasy players, we're just going to have to sit, watch, and adapt as things go. That's what we've been saying almost all the way through this uh, this uh, podcast this morning. Is uh, we'll see what happens, and so it should be it should be interesting and should be fun. It will be. It's always fun to look at baseball. I've got a whole weekend planned with uh, me, my TV, and uh, maybe a cooler of cold beverages at my side. It's going to be great. Uh, it's going to be great talking with you all during the season, however long it lasts. Nick, we'll talk to you again next week. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has been our man on the National League beat since forever here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn over to the American League and Baseball HQ columnist and co-general manager Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back. PD, happy opening day, my friend. Yes, no kidding, right? It seems like we've been waiting months. <laughs> Probably because we've been waiting months. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, now the uh, of course the the worry that I think a lot of people have is: Are we going to get through the sixty games? And if we get sort of thirty, are we going to say that our leagues count? Are we going to just throw our hands up? I, mean, I don't think we're out of the woods quite yet. Well, certainly not. But you know, if there's a day to be optimistic, it's today, right? Absolutely, and it's a fairly sunny day here in Waterloo, Ontario, as, as a matter of fact. So, uh, if nothing's going to make you think of baseball more than a sunny day, I, I don't think. Uh, the big news uh, to start in the American League, Ray, Mike Trout, after back and forthing about whether he wanted to participate, has told us he's going to participate. Mike Trout says, I am playing, which is the perfect message for opening day, really, right? Uh, you know, it's interesting. If you've been watching, I don't know how closely you've been watching his ADP, but it's been dropping in the last couple of weeks. Uh, as people got more and more nervous about uh, whether he would opt out and also how much time he would miss with the uh, the baby being born. So one of those two concerns is alleviated at least. He didn't opt out. He's going to play. Uh, there's still the question of how much time he's going to miss around the birth. And you know, that's both how much time it will take him to uh, you know get home and do what he has to do and then whether there are any issues on the way back in with test results or any of those sorts of things it's not a bubble so it's not like he has to quarantine but uh there could be some concerns there so we're still being a little conservative with his playing time we've got him at 70 percent playing time right now which basically projects to miss a couple of weeks uh so there's probably some upside from there if you compare that to like a normal uh you know birth situation where they um we've seen those in other years where 
the player goes on the uh, you know family the family list for you know something like three to five days. So we're being a little more pessimistic than that, but you know everything's an unknown right now, right? It is, and of course the the possibility of even missing a few games, which would be bad enough in a full length season, is is really exacerbated by the fact that if he misses five days, which used to be one. F- 32nd of the season it's now sort of one third of the season or whatever however the math works it's a lot more impactful because of the because of the shortness of the available remaining games yeah for sure and you know my, one of my themes for uh drafting and roster construction in this sprint season is that i've i, I think it's critically important to max out every at bat in every inning and you know having a 35 five dollar player your first round pick be already capped at you know, if we've got up at 70% playing time, probably the absolute cap is like 85 or something like that. And that's just leaving uh, at-bats on the table right from the start. And, uh, you know, that's not the foot I want to get off on. But, uh, you know, other people's risk tolerance varies, and that's fine. That's why we play the games. That's right. It's 8% of the of the games five if he misses five days. Not not a third. I just wanted to let the <laughs> listeners know I have a better grasp of math than it might have uh, it might have sounded like. So the the long and the short of it is I think if if you did manage to draft Mike uh, Trout with the 12th pick or 11th pick, I saw him go somewhere at the top of the second round. Somebody tweet, tweeted out the other night, well, you got to be rubbing your hands in glee at this point because you got really two top first round picks if you got Mike Trout that late. Yes, that's uh, that worked out well. But as we're as we're suggesting here, you you probably won uh, you know a little bit of profit in, at the draft table. But don't uh, you know profit is not actually awarded at the draft table. We still have to uh, play this thing out and see how it actually turns out. In Tout uh, American League, we had our first fab run a little early. We had it on Wednesday night, and uh, Franchi Cordero, newly of the Kansas City Royals, was the top get, uh, almost $400 out of a 1000 fab budget. Uh, we didn't talk much about this trade last week anyway, but uh, Franchi Cordero looks like a big winner in the, uh, er, in the early going. Uh, let me ask you first, what do you think of Franchi Cordero in Kansas City as a general theme? I, it's good news for him on a couple of levels, certainly... I think one of the reasons he got moved was, you know, we don't have to cover the Padres side. We're covering the AL here, but you know, there was a logjam of outfielders in uh, San Diego, and they, you know, he seemed like he was maybe not on the outside looking in exactly, but they had a number of alternatives and decided to, uh, you know, thin their herd a little bit and pick up some other prospects. Uh, Kansas City's a much different situation. It, I mean, they have outfielders, just not good ones, uh, and then the. Uh, the outlook got even better with the news that Hunter Dozier is on the COVID list now. So that uh, it picks up some even additional playing time or, you know, clears a path for Dozier, for uh, both Cordero and probably Michael Franco. But, uh, you know, I was trying to figure out going back to last weekend when the trade first broke, my first thought was that they would put Cordero in center field and put Merrifield back at second base and that Nicky Lopez would probably be the loser. But then in the interim, before Dozier got sick, the, the uh, suggestion out of Kansas City said that Merrifield was still going to play a lot of center field. So I was not quite sure what Cordero's outlook was when everyone was healthy before Dozier went down. So, but, you know, presumably, uh, you know, the Dozier won't be back for at least a few weeks. And that uh, sets Cordero up to have a clear shot at playing time and show what he can do. The Dozier um, 
going to the IL, uh, whatever they call it, the COVID IL, also seems to benefit Michael Franco. Yeah, that's the other uh, guy picking up the playing time here. I think you know Dozier was probably going to play most of the time in the outfield and have Franco uh, locked in at third base, but that uh, you know that, that this removes the threat from Franco of Dozier coming back and taking up his uh, former position at third base. So uh, Franco should be pretty well entrenched at third right now, which. You know, he's been a very erratic up and down uh, hitter for the course of his career. And, but, you know, he's also one of those guys who's, you know, if you went through his history, uh, you know, has had some very, very good 60 game stretches. So it's not out of the realm that uh, he goes out and hangs out a pretty, hangs up a pretty big season. In Los Angeles, the Angels uh, spend a lot of money acquiring Anthony Rendon. He's been going at fairly lofty positions in this year's drafting. And it says now they're going to. Sp- put him uh, on the bench for a couple of games. He's got some kind of oblique problem. And uh, as Jock Thompson reported in playing time today, you know, it may only be for a couple of days, but as we said before, a couple of days in a 60 day season, a 60 game season is more impactful. Uh, what are they going to do about uh, Anthony Rendon and who benefits in the meantime? Yeah, that you summarized it nicely. That's why I wanted to talk about this one. You know, if this was, you know, opening weekend in April and, Rendon was day to day with an oblique. We'd be like, "Oh, fine, you know, he'll, he'll miss the first weekend. Worst case, he goes on the DL and misses, you know, fifteen days." And you know, it doesn't sound like one of those severe six-week oblique things if he's day to day. But still, you know, you, his draft value would not materially change. But I saw him falling down draft boards this week as this thing lingered, just because, like we were talking about with Trout and earlier on you know a week lost is you know 10 percent of the season and you know the, that's very much in play and it could get worse from there so uh david fletcher is probably going to be the one who plugs into uh third base you know sort of he's been their utility man and if you remember it was him and uh tommy listella who were sort of manning second base and third base for them last year when listella was healthy and listella's healthy again and back at second so that frees up fletcher probably to uh slide in and get most of the at bats at third base uh matt tice is also an option here uh he you know if they decide to go with the platoon tice is like, the good side of the platoon here he would get the uh you know the, the left-handed at bats against right-handed pitching so i mean best case for current rendon owners that's you know a starter to each for those guys this weekend and rendon is back playing early next week but obliques are tricky in the run-up to this season and in the run-up to the shortened season, I was seeing a lot of touts uh, recommending A.J. Puck in Oakland. Now we get news out of uh, Oakland that he's got a shoulder injury and that it looks like it could be serious. So assuming that Puck's going to miss some starts, uh, we don't know how many, but assuming it's uh, enough to make a, make a difference, uh, who's going to benefit in that uh, Oakland rotation, or are they going to manage it by you know, Oaklandy things that they do with mixing and matching and starters and bulkers and all that kind of stuff. I certainly would not rule out that scenario. Uh, you know, certainly tough news for Puck here. Uh, I think the reason people are thinking that this is, you know, potentially ominous for him for the longer term is that this is, I believe, the same shoulder ailment that he wore a variation of it, but certainly his pitching arm, but a variation of the same uh, um, issue that was bothering him uh, back in regular spring training. So if it didn't clear up and you know, with the three, four months of rest here, then that certainly suggests that this is uh, 
some serious problem. And I, I, I think I read he is going to see uh, Dr. Elitrash, which is, uh, you know, I think the modern day equivalent of going to see Dr. Anders. Uh, so we'll wait for the further news there, but all signs uh, point toward a uh, lengthy absence, and it doesn't have to be that lengthy an absence, especially for a pitcher to knock about for this entire season. So as far as who's going to pick up the pieces, uh, Daniel Mengden's coming back from injury. I think he was already slotted in the rotation, at least for a couple of starts, while uh, the delayed Jesus Lizardo got stretched out. Uh, Mengden's coming back from injury himself, so the workload he can carry is still tbd a little bit uh chris bassett was probably going to be their sixth sixth starter swing man so he jumps into the rotation uh at the back end you would think uh neither one of these guys from a skills perspective or anything to get excited about bassett's got a projected 82 bpv uh 2.6 command those are you know as we've been talking about over the last couple weeks those are pretty darn average numbers you know 10 years ago we might have gotten excited about that but with the state of pitching and uh in the game and the strikeout ranks these days that these guys are pretty pedestrian. Mengden's not even that good. His uh, he carries a 2.2 command projected and a 50 BPV. Uh, there were some reports that he was tinkering with his delivery coming back from injury. So maybe, you know, maybe he picks up some games there, but they're both very speculative ads at best. Uh, the other you know, deep sleeper name here is Jordan Weems, who Jock wrote up in the, uh, as a possible beneficiary. Uh, in the bullpen, because you know, if these if Bassett and Mengden are getting starter innings or moving to the rotation or be being openers or what have you, there's more relief innings available. And Weems is somebody who might pick it, pick them up out of the bullpen. Uh, for those not familiar, he's a former catcher who went to the mound, and you know, basically because he was a, a you can get, imagine he's the catcher in the minor leagues with an absolute cannon for an arm who can't hit. And uh, so one day they threw him on the mound, and, uh, and he has transitioned to being a pitcher. Uh, but control is a problem there uh, right now in our projections. We've got him for 14 innings this year and nine walks. So that tells you just about uh, where the peril lies there. <laughs> Handle with extreme caution is the uh, is the watchword there, I think. I was just thinking, isn't it weird that a guy can uh, develop a reputation for a throwing arm, firing the firing the ball 125 feet to second base with uh, un uncanny accuracy, but can't throw it 60 feet across the plate with any uncanny accuracy? Uh, but you know, remember Troy Percival was a catcher at one point and then ended up being a a very very good relief pitcher, and maybe it just takes time to to work it out. Uh, you can't teach. Henry Jansen, too, I think, is another of the uh, switching from the other side of the uh, battery duo. And yeah, that took a couple of years, too, to, to you, know, the, you know, can understand the mechanics and spinning the ball and those sorts of things. So, uh, you know, tuck him away. Maybe he's a couple of years away from being a closer. Yeah, for sure. If you're in some kind of uh, long-term league, a dynasty league or, or a, a keeper league with relatively friendly rules in that regard, uh, something to think about. Uh, talking of bullpens, uh, Doug Dennis, our bullpen buyers by columnist at BaseballHQ.com, had a couple of uh, articles this week looking at uh, spring, uh, summer training wraps. They were called one for each league, and in the American League, um, pretty much uh, um, um, going by the chalk. But uh, he had a couple of interesting comments to make about uh, bullpens that he said are more dangerous than usual, one of them in Kansas City. But the other one that I was interested in was in Seattle. Yeah, the Seattle bullpen has sort of been catching my eye all spring, too. Just I always get interested in the pens that have, you know, they're 
there's no closer getting drafted early there. So it's a relatively cheap place to speculate. And if you pick the right one, uh, you can get some potential profit. Um, I've ended up with a ton of uh, Matt McGill in my drafts. I mean, I was going to say this spring, but I mean, really, we've been drafting for what, nine months now? <laughs> <laughs> over the course of uh, the course of this draft season, shall we say, I, he ended the year in 2019, which you know was a lot, very long time ago now. But he sort of that was a closer carousel in Seattle all year. But he sort of got the last ride on it. He got uh, four or five saves, you know, down the stretch for them, and you know wasn't enough to make him the incumbent. But I was interested in him just for since he was sort of uh, you know the last guy to hold. To, take a stab at it and was kind of effective at it down the stretch. But then they acquired Yoshihiro Hirano uh, in the spring, and he seemed to jump right to the top of the closer charts after he landed there. But now he's on the COVID IL, or at least he's got the undisclosed injury situation, and it's not totally clear whether he's going to be ready to start the season. Austin Adams was another guy who had some uh, – some buzz here as a possible sleeper candidate, but now there he's coming off knee surgery from back in the offseason and may not be quite ready. So there are other names. There's Brandon Brennan, there's Dan Altavilla, but for the moment, I mean McGill's skills aren't exciting for a closer, but you know, given that he held the job last and everyone else who might take it from him, at least to start the year, is slowed down. It seems to me that he's probably going to get the first op. And something to keep in mind when you're talking about closers, you need to have a team that gets wins if you want to have a guy get saves. And to be charitable, it doesn't look like the Seattle team's going to be any kind of juggernaut piling up, you know, 40 wins in a 60 game season. No, not at all. It's, but it's kind of interesting. Um, I, maybe I've just been swayed by. You know, Jared Kalenic's not going to be on the roster, their top prospect. But, um, you know, there were some uh, YouTube, some uh, Twitter um, clips of him raking the ball. And it got me looking at his lineup. There, This team's going to score some runs if some of the young kids that we're fairly optimistic about, you know, Evan White in particular, uh, Jake Fraley has a pretty interesting endgame projection from us. They could score some runs, but for sure their pitching is a horror show. So uh, the best case scenario for McGill or whoever is the closer is probably locking down some 11 and 9 games when the bats go, when the bats go off. And finally, every year, Matt Cederholm presents at BaseballHQ.com his all-value team. He's looking at players whose projected values seem to be way out of sync with their ADPs or auction values. Uh, the team had a lot of National Leaguers, got to be uh, upfront about that, but there were some interesting names in the American League as well. Yeah, I felt a little slighted by Matt. I think I have to drop him a note and say I want to, I want to see the AL only all value team just so I can get equal time here on uh, for guys we can talk about. But the uh, there were a couple of interesting names, like you say, uh, mixed in with the uh, sort of National League all to all star team here. Uh, Randall Grichuk is one uh, that Toronto lineup I think is going to be super fun. You know, we talked last week about how they rejiggered it with. Uh, you know, def- defensively with Guerrero going to first base or and or DH, but Grichuk is a fun power hitter on a, on a team that's I think going to score a lot of runs. Of course, we've got to temper our run scoring projection for that team until we actually find out what their home park are is. But that's a 
that's another story. I really like Richard's bat, um, and he was coming cheap in a lot of drafts this year. So he goes on the list. Uh, as far as pitching, uh, Colin McHugh was on the list, but he's since opted out. Uh, Brandon Workman, uh, you know, Red Sox closer, local to me, is uh, made the team too. Uh, it, based on his difference in our ranking versus where he's going in ADP. Uh, and it's interesting because uh, our ranking is actually lower than his ADP, but the closer rankings are, the closer ADPs are so hot right now that the fact that he was even in the ballpark of his ADP sort of defaulted him onto this list. I'm maybe, I'm, I, maybe I've been watching too many grainy Facebook videos of, uh, Red Sox interest squad games, but Workman has gotten absolutely lit this month. So that may be absolutely nothing, uh, you know, but I saw like John Andrioli was one guy who took him deep and that's just never a good sign. I thought so Workman may very well have still been working on things uh, and he's certainly going to open the season in the closer role and he was very, very good there last year. So that makes sense and it's probably nothing to worry about. But if I'm rostering Workman, I'm probably making a last round pick on Matt Barnes just as the insurance policy right now, just in case uh, whatever uh, whatever Workman was doing in the inter-squad games carries over to the regular season. Well, talking about Randall Gritchick, uh, I I live up here near Toronto. You see a lot of media coverage of him, and everybody loves the guy. He's a good teammate and all that kind of stuff. The the problem is he he just strikes out a lot, and until uh, there, but there's been stories that he's been working on that, that he's been focusing on contact, and it, it's hard to say when you look at a guy like Gritchick is a is a high strikeout rate, the propensity to swing and miss is that more of a problem or less of a problem in the shortened season. I mean, it's a great question. You've seen those strikeout hitters go from you know go through go through weeks where they strike out twenty times in forty at bats, and you know just nothing's going right. And when it gets bad, it gets really bad. So uh, you know, streaks can be good and streaks can be bad. The interesting thing about Grychuk, though, is you know he you're right. He's made noises about cleaning up his contact rate, but he actually did it last year. Uh, if you remember, it was. Um, You'll remember better than I will, but it was preseason last year. It was like March of 2019 or something like that, where they gave him that fairly big contract extension, right? Yep. Um, and then, you know, for the first half of the season coming off of that, you know, he hit 15 home runs, but he had a 227 batting average and he was striking out 31% of the time. You know, in our metrics, that's a contact rate of just 69%, which is in the red flag range. But in the second half, uh, the batting average only went up to 238. But the contact went from sixty nine percent to seventy six. Seventy six is, if not at, if not above league average these days, right at it, um, and still hit sixteen home runs and two hundred seventy seventy three at bats. So the power stayed exactly the same uh, while he was making more contact. the The negative of all of that is that his walk rate went down while his contact rate went up. So that more sounds like attacking earlier in the count or something like that he hasn't you know he, he still hasn't fully mastered balls and strikes but the idea that you know in sort of his first um was it you know in his longest stretch of uninterrupted playing time you know he got he played absolutely every day last year as opposed to being a 400 at bat guy for uh his time before that in st louis so he did show some adjustment in season Hopefully, there's a little bit more to come if you've invested in him heavily as I have. But the contact rate doesn't worry me if that second half number carries over. 76 is perfectly respectable. 
And meanwhile, I have three teams that I'm playing this year. I didn't draft any in July. Couldn't uh, find the time or work myself into the excitement that I needed. But all three teams have Edwin Encarnacion. And uh, Edwin Encarnacion, I, I don't even understand how he can be a value still, considering he's like a, a Nelson Cruz kind of consistent value. You know, he really is. You know, it's a, it's a great comp with Cruz because Cruz, I, I'm not exactly sure what it is, but at age 40 or whatever, has the same risk pro- profile as Encarnacion, but they have pretty much the same skill in that, you know, Encarnacion doesn't hold quite the batting average that Cruz does, but they're, you know, pristine power skills and Encarnacion's come, you know, eight, nine rounds cheaper than Cruz's, which is why he ends up on the all-value team here. The other thing is, you know, Cruz clogs the DH spot, which, you know, I'm normally pretty agnostic about doing. And if you want, if you want to take the value of Cruz and do that uh, in a, in a full season, I think that's fine. But I think in the sprint season with the amount of injuries and absences, we're going to see, I, I just had no appetite for clogging my DH spot this year. And, and I say that because Encarnacion is not DH only. He's still, at least for this year, carries the first base eligibility. So um, I did end up taking him in one of my uh, NFBC drafts this last week. I did a couple of drafts this month, and he was one I snapped up in, uh, geez, it was, I think it was around 11 or 12 range uh, compared to, you know, like I said, Cruz goes in like four. It is a, a difference that doesn't seem justifiable for sure. And that Chicago lineup, they're going to score runs. It looks like they're going to be pretty good depending on where they slot Luis Robert. Yeah, there, you know, there's some risk there. We, uh, we've talked about the downside with Robert before. And, but, yeah, that's a, uh, that's a potent lineup. They're, they've come a long way from, uh, you know, I made jokes about uh, you know, sitting in the uh, bleachers at Fenway watching them like two or three years ago with the likes of uh, Daniel Polka where every time they flashed up, the White Sox lineup on the uh, scoreboard, like every OPS started with a five. This is not, this, this is no longer that that White Sox team. No, it certainly isn't. I, I think the White Sox could be a real interesting team to watch this year and a lot of fun as well. Uh, Ray, thanks a million for helping us out with the American League. Enjoy opening weekend, and we'll talk to you again in seven days' time. We'll actually have some games to talk about. I can't wait. That sounds great. We'll have actual news and not just, uh, you know, test results. Fantastic. Thanks, Ray. Thank you. Ray Murphy is a columnist and the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Alex Chamberlain from Rotographs. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Rotisserie Gaming, some guy named Ron Chandler discusses looking beyond our illegitimate season. In the Speculator column, Ryan Bloomfield looks into his crystal ball for some long-shot end-of-season leaders and award winners. And in the Big Hurt, injuries analyst Matthew Cedarholm looks at key injuries to Milwaukee shortstop Luis Urias, Minnesota outfielder Byron Buxton. What, he's hurt? Who'd have thought? And A.J. Puck. And I'll be asking Ray Murphy about that in the American League Market Watch. And those are just three articles among dozens. A small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes. News updates in playing time today. Roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have our buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse. 
And as I mentioned, injury analysis in the Big Hurt as well. And we have tools like the player projections updated every day. We've got daily dashboards, those pitcher matchups planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. So when you add it all up, you've got expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues in a short season where every decision matters. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Alex Chamberlain from Rotographs at the Fangraphs website. And Alex, in part one, we talked about the early ERA estimators that you discussed in part one of your three-part series at Rotographs. But in part two of your series, you looked at the present ERA estimators, which have developed with the arrival of new data. And you started by talking about an estimator called deserved ERA. So let's lead off there. What's the advantage of deserved ERA? I created this deserved ERA, and I I wanted to do something that used more than just strikeouts, walks, and home runs or fly balls. Like I really wanted to to use uh, all elements of pitcher performance uh, in terms of what they're allowing from hitters. Um, And so WOBA, weighted on base average, it applies a value to basically every event that happens. There's a, there's a different value for strikeouts and walks, uh, singles, doubles, triples, home runs. And so giving specific values to each of these events and actually accounting for all of them in an ERA estimator, it does the best job of any of them to describe past performance. Um, this makes sense because it's it's taking account of the the most the kind of like the widest array of outcomes and, and taking the most holistic approach to what actually had previously happened um i wanted to do this because when i had that kind of that epiphany the first time of these era estimators they aren't actually that predictive so why are we even bothering trying to predict like why don't we just let's just lean into the descriptive side of things let's just lean into how well we can describe how they should have performed last year and really kind of get to brass tacks about who was lucky or unlucky because if we're going to be playing that game if we're going to be saying you know who should have performed a certain way based on what actually happened this is the best way to describe that and so i'm playing with fire a little bit because i i i I don't want to say that trying to predict future performance is a fool's game it is a little bit but there still is value to it and and creating this deserved era the way that i did it really it really just um throws caution to the wind in terms of pre- predictive value. So I don't want to declare whatsoever that it's the best in it, 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 by that means. But I, I do I do think it's really interesting to look at it that way because um, there's value still, again, like like kind of like we said, in, in trying to describe as best as we can what should have happened and looking at those big outliers. I still think there's a lot of value to be had there. There's also expected ERA. You wrote about that, and this is not to be confused with the Baseball HQ version, also called expected ERA. Where does this metric fit into that spectrum of predictive to descriptive? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's unfortunate that it's the exact same nomenclature. Um, Yeah, so expected ERA is the StatCast version, and that came out just a couple of months ago, I think. Um, And it is, you don't need to spend a lot of time describing it. it. It performs basically just as well as XFIP. Um, it is very similar. It, instead of using WOBA, um, the way that I described it, they use their in-house metric of expected WOBA um, and expected WOBA on contact. And that kind of like looks at uh, a hitter or a pitcher's um, exit velocities and launch angles and um, ascribes a value of you know what 
they think should have happened based on similar types of balls in play. It's very sensible. And um, using this uh, framework, it really comes out to being basically just as descriptive and predictive as XFIP. So if you're using XERA um, from StatCast, just know that it's very, very similar to XFIP, not necessarily superior and in, inferior to any others, but it, um, very, very similar to XFIP and just provides another way of looking at things, just kind of another dimension that we can um, evaluate pitcher performance. Well, when I read your first article in the series, Alex, and uh, when I heard you talking about it here on the show, uh, the first thought that popped into my mind when you s- described the difference between the two metrics, one uses fly balls and one uses home runs, was in my mind, I, I, the first thing that popped into my mind was, why not hard hit fly balls? Because medium hit fly balls are cans of corn, infield fly balls are automatic outs, basically strikeouts. So why right. not use that? And, and then sure enough, here comes predictive classified run average uh, that removes fly balls and substitutes barrels from StatCast. The barrels metric is a combination of launch angle and, and exit velocity. How does that one substitution improve the results? And does it improve them descriptively or predictively or both? Yeah, so so Connor Kirkon, um, he developed this um, estimator. And it actually started as a descriptive estimator. So it was called CRA, uh, and then he relabeled it DCRA. And that was actually... They did a they did a website switch a little bit a little while ago and they lost some of their um, their articles and I actually couldn't find the DCRA one but it's it's not as important because PCRA is a new one and, and again like you said um, PCRA incorporates barrels uh, and it's it's such a, a clever and novel way of right what you just said accounting for hard hit fly balls really what you're doing is you're taking the fly ball element of it and just saying well how many of those were hard hits. Uh, and the thing about barrels, this is a stat cast metric. Uh, like you said, it, it incorporates launch angle and exit velocity. It, it looks at um, the best combinations of those and then basically converts it to a percentage. It's pretty sticky. It's really sticky from year to year for hitters. And it's actually fairly sticky year to year for pitchers too, um, which indicates that it is kind of a skill that a hitter can own. And, and again, kind of like what I said earlier, it is the and what you just alluded to now it is the happy medium between home runs and fly balls and it improves upon both of them pretty substantially um i i'll walk that statement back um because we're still having a lot of trouble predicting future performance but in terms of describing and predicting performance it shows up as an improvement for both and you know it's it's a small improvement um it's not something that completely changes the game but in terms of you know, considering that these three, FIP, XFIP, and Sierra, have been around for so long and remained undefeated for so long, um, the fact that we were able to incorporate um, StatCast data and to improve them is a promising sign for the fact, or just kind of a, a promising sign for this data being useful to us as we move forward. Um, it's really interesting. There's so much of it, the, the exit velocity and the launch angle and yada, yada. There's all these different metrics, but if they don't add value, at a certain point, we're just we're just having fun with numbers, um, and it, it sounds really cool to talk about them. But um, you know, what value do they have to us if they're not um, improving on what we already know? So it's it's nice to know that they are. And I was going to talk about this later, but since you raised it, I'll I'll ask you now. There's an awful lot of uh, uh, work that goes into de- de- developing these metrics by you and and by others who have you know, tremendous ability with the statistical analysis and econometrics and just plain old math. But the gains oftentimes seem to be fairly incremental or marginal. And at what point 
does it make sense to just say, yeah, it's about as good as it's ever going to be? Or is it like a holy grail that I am going to figure it out and I am going to find the one predictive thing or, or can make a predictive thing? What's the, where, what drives you towards getting that extra like 0.003 of ERA accuracy? Right. I think it depends on what day you ask me and how I'm feeling that day. Because I think like if you asked me yesterday, I'd be like, we should not even keep trying. <laughs> um, today, I'm like, yeah, you know, I feel like we're on to something a little more. Um, I think that, you know, I think we have to keep trying no matter what. But I, I do think that there's there's just a finite amount that we can we can learn. Um, and that's not that's not an indictment of the human mind. That's that's just a, a, a kind of an acceptance of how much luck and variation happens in baseball we're so um we're at the mercy of hitters and pitchers getting injured we're at the mercy of them fundamentally changing their skill levels and that's that's nothing that can be predicted if we're looking at backwards outcomes we can't know that lucas giolito added three or four miles per hour to his fastball and that's going to completely change his outlook there are just certain variables that we can't account for and we can include aging curves and we can include as much kind of backwards looking information as we can but there's only so much we can gain um and and not to mention even if a, if a player remains at the same skill level for years and years and years there's still so much luck that's happening year to year that there's just it's impossible to ever get all the way but i think there are people hopefully including me who are who are just kind of onto it we're getting so close to having even just a minor breakthrough, and sometimes that feels like uh, a lot. Uh, you know, just it feels very rewarding, even though we may find out at the end that it's like we are still not much better than we were ten years ago. But I feel better than I did ten minutes ago, and maybe that's all that matters. So, and yeah, it's a, there's a certain satisfaction in just knowing that you moved the moved the needle, however much it was, and a lot of good science got done that way. You know what it all puts me in mind of? I studied astronomy in in university, not as a major. It was my required science. I was a journalism major, and uh, you know when they describe how the how the human race figured out what's going on in the clockwork of the heavens like the original guesses were pretty good. You know, they figured out how the planets were moving. They could predict them. They could describe them. And they kept inventing new and better ways to figure out where, why they were making mistakes. The reason they were making mistakes because the model was wrong. They had earth at the center of circular orbits and we're not at the center and the orbits aren't circular. So, and eventually as science got better and as techniques got better and as calculation ability got better, we got better results in describing what's going on up there to the point now where astronomy is getting fairly incremental as far as the improvements in, in describing and predicting what's going on as well. But it's still worth doing, you know. If, if somebody wants to stick a Hubble telescope up there, I say go for it, you know, because we're going to learn something. And we may not even know what it is. So that's the cool part. Uh, the last two kinds of... Uh, uh, Estimators in the present are deserved run average, that's a baseball prospectus entry, and forecasted run average called FRA. How do these two work or differ? What's what's their standout things and how well do they work? Yeah, yeah. So DRA is, uh, that's deserved run average, that's from baseball prospectus. I'm not, I, I don't want to pretend like I'm qualified to speak very uh, cogently about this. Um, it is a, from my understanding, it's a pretty complicated model. Um, it's definitely something that uh, you can't just like plug it, it, have it be publicly available and plug your own numbers into the way that we can for FIP. 
um, or XFIP, which has like a pretty clean um, uh, formula that you can look up on on or on on fan graphs, or you can just Google it or whatever. DRA is is a black box. It's a it's a private proprietary metric, and it accounts for um, what I think is most interesting. But among other things, um, you know, catcher performance. So we're talking about like framing and blocking. We're talking about uh, even umpiring differences. We're talking about um, park factors. We're talking about um, opposing hitter performance. Um, it's taking into account a lot of factors. And the thing that makes it hard to compare uh, against ERA estimators is, is it's a, a runs per nine um, metric. And so as opposed to just looking at earned runs, we're looking at all runs. And that's accounting for uh, you know runs that are scored on errors. Uh, too. So that, that makes it a little bit different, um, but it's still really interesting because a pitcher with a good DRA should have an even better ERA if only a fraction of all runs are earned. Um, there is a, an inherent truth to a pitcher performing, um, you know, if a pitcher's ERA is higher than his DRA, that should be a pretty interesting sign to you that maybe, um, that maybe the amount of earned runs he should be allowing should be um, quite a bit lower but again i don't want to pretend like i know the ins and outs of this quite complicated and it's also a black box um, but it is one that we i don't hear talked about very often and i think it's my understanding is that it's pretty strong um, and coming from baseball perspectives that wouldn't really surprise me and fra and fra is one that it was developed very recently by dan richards at pitcher list and I, again i don't want to be able to know like i can speak to this well but my understanding is that it, it strays a little bit from what we know, but adheres to a lot of the same tenets, which is it uses strikeout minus walk rate. So instead of having um, instead of having two separate values for strikeouts and walks, we just have one one single value for strikeouts minus walks put together. And then, kind of like barrels, where we had exit velocity and launch angle put together, we're now splitting those apart and using average exit velocity and average launch angle. So to recap that. Um, strikeouts minus walks, exit velocity, and launch angle. And so we're, we're keeping it simple. Uh, and again, to my knowledge, it doesn't it doesn't sizably improve upon anything, but it does improve. And it, it kind of has a a, a similar uh, incremental gain um, like PCRA does in terms of how we're understanding this by incorporating that element of of exit velocity, a, a hard hit rate, so to speak, um, but in a more um, measurable form. Uh, and also looking at fly balls, but in terms of a specific angle and not just a percentage. So we're 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 really tapping into more granular ways of measuring pitcher performance. So again, it's just these, you know, like you said, these are the incremental gains of using more finely tuned data. And I think as we collect more of that, especially with Hawkeye, um, which is supposed to be better, but presently looks a bit dubious based on the fact that it measured a 680 foot home run at the Yankee game the other day. Um, you know, hopefully if this is, uh, an, an improvement upon, um, track man data or whatever it was called that, the, you know, we should be able to glean even more insights than we could before. You mentioned the granularity of the available data has been getting sh sharper and sharper for people like you and, and people like me and all of us who look at this stuff. The clubs have even better data, and they don't share it with everybody. Do you have any insight from anybody you know whether their estimators are developing and are better than what we have out here? I have no idea, but I think there's reason to believe that they are. Um, I, th I think there's some interesting 
yeah, I mentioned Connor. Um, he he developed PCRA, and he he's done some really cool work. Um, most recent, one of them most recently was True Hit um, slash uh, a dynamic hard hit rate, and that's looking at instead of um, instead of just assuming that all hard hits are ninety five miles per hour and above, um, you are catering that hard hit rate to the angle at which they hit it, and so um, there are certain angles that a player can hit a ball that have kind of a, a physical limit to how hard you can hit it. And if a, if a hitter is hitting it extremely hard, even at a bad angle, that still tells you a lot about that, that hitter. Um, and um, using information like that, he developed this metric and he kind of quickly saw that like the Yankees were picking up guys, you know, going out of their way to target guys like uh like Mike Talkman, who's my guy, but also Cameron Mabin, um Gio Urshela, um guys who maybe didn't have results to show for it, but had really interesting batted ball outcomes. Um and again, not by ways that we have been traditionally measuring it. Like maybe not necessarily um a high exit velocity or a, a, an optimal launch angle, but looking just kind of taking different approaches to looking at this data showing indications that these guys have some capacity to break out and it appears that the Yankees were really tapping into that and that's not that's that's purely anecdotal evidence of that happening but you know when you when you see something like that when we come up with a new metric publicly that adds value and then we see that a team or a set of teams have already appeared to clue into that it kind of leads us or leads at least it leads me to believe that they've got some smart people with some good data already doing similar stuff on the inside and they're not necessarily waiting for us to come out with anything they're definitely the good teams are are really trailblazing in their own right we just don't get to see it which is unfortunate because it'd be really cool if we could alex chamberlain is a pitching analyst and writer at rotographs which you can find at the Fangraphs website we'll take a quick break and we'll be back with part three of our talk with alex next on baseball hq radio one one pitch he popped him up he's gonna get it roches down from third roches makes the catch ball game over a perfect game a perfect game for david Cohn. The third time works like a charm. It is the third perfect game in Yankee Stadium history. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part three of our feature interview with Alex Chamberlain, pitching analyst and writer at Rotographs. And Alex, we've looked at the past, we've looked at the present of ER estimators, so let's turn to the future, which we know will have even more granular data for analysts like you to explore. But before we get into specifics about the future trends, what does your ideal ERA estimator look like? I think my, my dream ERA estimator will look at pitch-specific skill. And, and what I mean by that is, we have ERA estimators, all of them that we've talked about so far, are really relying on outcomes. So strikeouts are an outcome, walks are an outcome, uh, fly balls, home runs are an outcome. Well, how do, how do those come about? Well, to some extent, barrels contribute to home runs, um, fly balls contribute to home runs, exit velocity and launch angle contribute to, to home runs or to hard hits or to barrels. We're, we're getting... We're getting kind of incrementally closer to getting to the root cause of performance but what really causes a pitcher to 
accumulate strikeouts or accumulate walks or allow a certain exit velocity or allow a launch angle. It's like we are we are at an intermediate stage of describing pitcher performance, but in my dream, my white whale um, really gets to the bottom of it by looking at individual pitch skill and really you know looking at how how often pitchers use certain pitches but beyond that looking at literally the physical components of a pitch we're talking about the velocity we're talking about the movement the the pitch location and and using that to tell us what performance should have happened and then based on that performance how to measure an era from that i think there is something really valuable to to be made using pitch specific analysis and i think it's it's hard to do which is why not too many people have done it there's a lot of kind of roadblocks with using pitch specific analysis such as the fact that only one in six pitches end in a batted ball and and only one in four pitches end a plate appearances so we have 75 percent of pitches that are only doing all of the work in between of getting a strike or getting a foul ball or or producing a ball and and how do you measure that and how should that go into era and, and you know there's a lot of there's a lot of what ifs there but and i don't know if i'm necessarily smart enough to answer that but i know there is someone out there who is who will be able to synthesize all this information about a pitcher's pitches about jacob Degrom's um, elite fastball or garrett cole's elite fastball or shane bieber's elite slider and incorporate them in ways beyond just saying he has a 14% swinging strike rate. That's super good, but why does he have a 14% swinging strike rate? His slider is good. Well, why is his slider good? Like you just have to keep asking. It's the journalistic approach of just keep asking the questions of why this, why this, why this until we get to the foundation of everything. And I think that foundation is what what is a pitch and what makes it good. And I, that is the ERA estimator that I want to that not. I said I want to create, but I want to see someone create it because I don't think it's going to be me. But I think it's soon. I think we're going to get there soon because we've got the data for it. You did a big study on StatCast data, Alex, to determine how pitch type plus location relate to exit velocity and separately to launch angle. And the design of the experiment is too detailed to get into here, but I thought it was very clever. And uh, I commend to anybody you should read these articles because you want to see how to design an experiment. That's how you do it. What did you find in that study? Yeah, I hate that it's it's so complicated. I wish I could explain it in a way that I wish I could just explain it without having to explain the math and not having people wonder how did he do that. But having to explain the math just makes it makes it ever so foggier. And I wish it was it was more approachable. It's something that I can work on. But basically, what I did was it, Connor and I again. I mentioned Connor again. We 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 message a lot on Twitter. He he's really smart. Um, I like bouncing ideas off of him. And um, one thing that I noticed when he he had kind of had this epiphany where he was like i think i think pitchers can really only control the launch angle they allow and i was like okay let me look into this and i noticed kind of like right off the bat that launch angle was very it was kind of like loosely correlated with um pitch height and so i i basically what i did was i i took every coordinate i took every single pitch where it was placed in the zone um using xz coordinates so lateral and or horizontal and vertical um, zone location, um, plotted them, found the average angles at those plots. And what I found was basically, um, it, it's so consistent. It's remarkably consistent. The higher in the zone the pitch is, the higher the launch angle is going to be. Um, and, 
and that's down the center of the zone. And, and as you move to the edges of the zone, launch angle will decrease a little bit. So you can, if you draw, you know, if you, if you pick a point in the heart of the zone and move away from that, the launch angle will decrease a little bit. Um, but just as you go straight up the zone, launch angle increases. And that was so interesting. And, and really one of those things where I was like, that's so intuitive too, because if you're going to throw a pitch higher, a pitcher, a hitter will probably hit the ball higher. I mean, it's just one of those things where you're like, of course, like that makes perfect sense. Um, and it was really interesting that I saw such a clear, clear relationship, but also problematic in that you, you can find the average launch angle at any specific coordinate very accurately, but there remains a really wide error bar. And that's the really interesting kind of like, that's the catch 22 of this, all of this is that we can have an idea of how a pitcher should perform, but the amount of luck involved with throwing a pitch right down the middle is, is, is absurd that a pitch down the heart will have such a wide range of outcomes. The easiest pitch to hit is still extremely hard to hit for a hitter. Um, and so we have this general idea of the launch angle a pitcher should allow, and yet there's still so much variation that could happen on any single pitch that it still makes it too hard to actually predict the launch angle, which is like, how is that? How can both of those things coexist? And so the next step ideally would be to figure out a way to kind of predict that launch angle more consistently because we can say a pitch up in the zone is probably going to be a pop-up, but how can we predict that more consistently than just saying uh, it will be some of the time, but also baseballs are impossible to hit. Why are we even trying to do this? So um, it was really interesting. I was glad that I, I, I had some breakthrough there, but at the, again, at the same time, I, I felt like I didn't at all when I learned that you can know the launch angle and at the same time not know the launch angle at all. Like that is a that is a hard thing to reconcile. <laughs> Your study said, uh, or you said in the article about the study that exit velocity is the best predictor of hitter performance, and that means it can't be the best predictor of pitcher performance. And I thought to myself, why can't they coexist? You know, uh, a hitter wants to hit the ball hard, and if a pitcher prevents him from doing it, then that's a good outcome for him versus a good outcome for the for the hitter. What am I missing? Yeah, I you know, I, I thought that too. And I, I think I've I don't know if I necessarily have the truth to the to all of this. I don't know if I necessarily fully have a, a firm grasp on this. But Tom Tango, who's who wrote the book, um he's the Statcast architect. You can find him at Tango Tiger on Twitter. He's very um very well known in the baseball uh the sabermetric sphere, but he's the one who posited that um, that exit velocity is controllable by the hitter. And when I thought about that, I was like, okay, so that, that means that there should be um, some element of the pitcher being able to prevent them from controlling that. But what I realized is um, if, the, if the hitter is controlling exit velocity, then really the pitcher is at the mercy of the hitter, generally speaking. The reason why we don't see certain pitchers with significantly higher exit velocities than others is is very likely just attributable to the fact that any given pitcher will see roughly the same the average a same average hitter over the extended period of time you know certain players will pitch in certain certain leagues that are maybe superior in terms of hitting prowess but overall everyone's going to see good hitters everyone's going to see bad hitters they all have a fundamental kind of 
they all have a an inherent exit velocity that they can achieve and the, the pitches are simply subject to that and that's what the data is showing i think it's more complex than that because i think we're on to something more and i don't want to say that they cannot control exit velocity whatsoever um but it does appear and, and existing research shows that it is mostly a hitter controlled aspect which which makes um launch angle more controlled um in terms of of pitcher skill which is also interesting to think about that basically pitchers are throwing to certain parts of the zone and that's how they're influencing what angles hitters are hitting at and hitters are choosing their own angle by choosing which pitches to swing at so like that's that's where it's all fitting in you know a guy who's swinging at high pitches is probably going to have a higher launch angle and a guy who's swinging at lower pitches is probably going to have a lower launch angle and that's just kind of how it shakes out and that's that's where that control comes from on the hitter standpoint but they're not controlling any specific pitch in a certain part of the zone. If you throw a pitch in the bottom of the zone, two different hitters will probably have the same likelihood of hitting X launch angle. And it really comes down to them choosing which pitches they should be swinging at, which is what, you know, the name of the game in terms of, in terms of hitting. So I think, again, one of those things where I feel like I just made it more complicated and it, it is really complicated, but um, you know, it's just a lot of interplay in terms of who's, who's determining what, part of the outcome and we're still just getting to the bottom of of what those answers might look like i don't want to claim to have again i don't want to claim to have the truth because i i think we're far from it still um, but we're getting there when you talk about all of this stuff and then you add in the control of the location in the zone what did you find out about that because that seems to me that's the other part of the puzzle it's hard it's hard to know um but yeah yeah uh, it's really it would suggest that that hitters who can, I'm sorry, not hitters, that pitchers who can command the ball better will have a superior chance to allow launch angles that are optimal for them. And I think some of my, some of that research in my post preliminarily showed that like peak Dallas Keuchel when he was, you know, incurring 66% ground balls, it was showing that based on where he was throwing his pitches, he absolutely deserved those outcomes. And he was incurring a lot of, a lot of low angles and you can see guys who are maybe worse in terms of command all over the zone ending up with not necessarily worse outcomes but maybe less consistent outcomes and and maybe showing up as as guys who deserve to suffer from a launch angle standpoint because if again if you're allowing more high angle hits you're probably allowing more home runs and that's where the bulk of damage is happening on those extra base hits on, on, on balls with on steeper angles. Um, something that I'll add to that is that something that I'm looking at right now is that um, it appears that exit velocity is kind of uh, a zone-based element too, and it's not quite the same shape as as um, launch angle. It's not as consistent as you move the ball up in the zone um, and <laughs> the length of the is higher, but you do see that as you stray from the heart of the zone, exit velocity starts to decrease. And so naturally, you know, each guy has his own inherent exit velocity. Miguel Sano has his own inherent exit velocity that is predicated upon his swing speed. But you'll see it you'll see it vary from his own personal average based on which ball he's hitting in which part of the zone, I think. I think you're gonna see um, probabilities being altered or augmented based on 
where that ball is being thrown. And, and if Miguel Sano is, is trying to swing at a ball low and away, he could still hit the ball harder than he would on a pitch down the, the heart of the zone, but that just means he probably got luckier. You know, his probability of hitting a hard ball down and away was dramatically reduced. The fact that he did hit the ball hard is actually probably a testament to his own good luck, and we can assume that maybe in the future he's not going to be as lucky as hitting a 105-mile-per-hour scorcher on a ball that's, that's pitched low and away. So I think you know, we're saying that exit velocity is not controlled by the pitcher. I don't think that's necessarily true. It just kind of has the same function of launch angle where you, know, you can throw a pitch to a certain spot in the zone and try to increase your chance of limiting exit velocity as much as possible. But then that's the most you could do. And if a guy hits it hard, he hits it hard. And there's so much chance involved with that that it's really hard to tell who's going to end up being luckier or unluckier than, than someone else. And again, that comes back to command, too. We're talking about command, a guy who can spot balls in the corners. We're talking about Kyle Hendricks, who, in my preliminary research here, showed up as the guy who could do this the best, commanding pitches to the parts of the zone that limit exit velocity we see year in and year out that he's the kind of guy that outperforms his era estimator and that kind of nicely ties us all back together of looking farther looking beyond how we've been kind of classically measuring performance incorporating new ways of thinking and finding our blind spots and i think kyle hendricks being a guy with excellent command throwing the ball to certain parts of the zone where exit velocity is harder to come by and having better ERA outcomes to show for it is a really good example of where we could be going next in terms of our research. You've mentioned uh, quite a few times the importance of height in the zone, uh, and you alluded in talking about the Miguel, Miguel Sano example, if he's fooled away, then chances are there's going to be a velocity effect. He's gonna, he's gonna nub the ball off the end of the bat and he's not gonna drive the ball with any authority. How much uh, does the horizontal pitch location fit into your analysis of what's going on here? Yeah, so I think, um, and then again, this is all just preliminary because I'm still working on this, but really launch angle is dependent on the, the vertical angle and exit velocity is dependent, or I'm, not, I'm sorry, the vertical um, position, the vertical coordinates, not angle, and exit velocity is determined by horizontal pitch location so in and out and so it's really interesting to realize that we're playing two different games here of of moving up and down and and, and in and out and trying to kind of exert some influence on two different aspects of hitter performance exit velocity and launch angle um it's i think it's too hard to tell now um but there definitely i think there is some importance there in terms of of, of where pitches are being thrown. And on top of all of that, not even to begin talking about not only exit velocity and launch angle, but whiffs. And whiffs having different um, different frequencies in different parts of the zones. We, we see pitchers who are really good who throw their fastballs. You know, Garrett Cole, um, Verlander, DeGrom, Scherzer, throwing their, pitch, their fastballs up, getting a lot of rise. They're going to get more whiffs up in the zone, but they're also, because they're throwing up in the zone, they're going to incur a lot more higher launch angles. And that's why we saw Verlander give up so many home runs off of his fastball last year. He was still excellent. He was elite. His fastball was elite. And yet still he managed to give up a bunch of home runs off his fastball. And we can kind of start to understand why that's happening. 
because he he's living up in the zone and that's just it comes with the territory of getting those strikeouts but also giving up maybe more home runs than you'd like to uh, it appears to to work for him and 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 I think that is uh, evidence to a a logical uh, and valuable trade-off for him but you're starting to see how those relationships start to to bear fruit in terms of where his pitch placement is and and why these outcomes are happening you ended up the series by reframing the question uh, to whether big differences between the distributions of pitch heights and locations on all pitches versus just batted ball events. Uh, when I looked at the articles, I, I wondered about the ability of the pitcher to fool the batter with some combination of mechanics and pitch movement and so forth so that a Jacob deGrom, who seems to spend too much time in the suboptimal height areas, succeeds because he's somehow making the hitters perceive that the ball is somewhere else than where it is, and and that's how come he's surviving what should be the uh, phenomenon you described about uh, Garrett Cole and Verlander. It's up in the zone. They, so they ought to all be clobbering it, and to an extent they were for Verlander, but a lot of times they're doing something that's just fooling them is the only way I can actually describe it, and, and is that right. quantifiable? I think it, it, it's probably, again, this is, that's, that's a great question. And I think there's absolutely something valid to what you're saying there. I think there's um, definitely a sequencing element to it. Um, I, I mentioned Ethan Moore in that last post, my estimators of the future post, and he's someone who has been doing some pitch level research. And he actually, he, in one of his posts, he was looking at, um, he was basically looking at the predictiveness of, of each pitcher and he only looked at it from a sequencing standpoint but he basically put a number value on how well can you predict what the next pitch will be from a certain pitcher and if you're a two pitch guy your number was really high in terms of being able to predict that and if you're a five six seven pitch guy your number was a lot lower and even a four pitch guy could have a low number if he was effectively sequencing and not making it so predictable and i thought that was really interesting i think that is exactly something that we can do and even if you are using the same pitch over and over, you can still look at differences in the speed or even the location of those pitches. You can you can change up your fastball. You can throw two different sliders or, or, or curves. I, I think it's sliders. Two different sliders like like Patrick Corbin does. Like you doesn't have to be across different kinds of pitches. It can be within a pitch, but generally speaking, yeah, I think if you're if you're mixing it up by pitch type, if you're mixing up your movement and your your velocity, I think you can you can have subpar outcomes or the expectation of subpar outcomes that improve based on your ability to do something beyond what the average pitcher can do and i think there's something again to be to be gained there that that we haven't done a good job of of quantifying yet and i'll leave to someone else to quantify because i don't know how to do it (laughs) and it's going to be interesting and uh, it's certainly a part of the calculation or a part of the analysis that kind of defies math to the to the extent that the ability to just outthink a guy isn't a mathematical thing i mean there are ways of looking at a chessboard mathematically but when you talk to people who are really good at the game they don't think of it in those terms it's more about patterns and and about expectations and about you know every so often playing the wrong thing just because you know he's expecting the right thing and all of these kind of things that are not so easily quantifiable. It's fascinating research, Alex. So what what are you going to focus on in the immediate future that we can look forward to? I think I'm going to I'm going to keep pulling at this thread, this this exit velocity thread for pitchers. I I'm I feel like I'm really onto something. It's just hard to it's hard to quantify and I think 
maybe the extent of it is just knowing knowing who commands their pitches really well and maybe not necessarily doing anything with that but just knowing who does that well and and maybe realizing that that person might be better at outperforming their era estimators than others um again i i mentioned kind of the list of names that showed up at the top upon my first look it was hendrix through and through um there was some cc sabathia but there also there was anibal sanchez who has had a resurgence based on limiting hard contact jacob de grom um was up there two times the last two years basically his cy young years were up there in terms of commanding the ball to locations that reduce exit velocity and so Harkening back to the launch angle thing, he was having subpar launch angles, but excellent exit velocity outcomes, at least in terms of expectations, um, in air quotes. Um, Granky, a guy that we know is a command artist, um, re- you know, definitely um, inhibits uh, exit velocity. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we're seeing guys like Herman Marquez, who maybe beyond just being in Coors Field has a serious problem with allowing hard contact and he has he has vicious stuff he has elite secondaries um but he's doing something wrong with where he's throwing the balls because it goes beyond just him being in cores he is allowing hard contact based on where he's throwing the ball and another guy that gives me cause for alarm uh is shane bieber uh and he's someone that i he's he might be the the sole reason why i'm i'm still on this tangent because he has elite stuff too he has two of the best secondary pitches in the game he has a really bad fastball that he can command really well and he allows really hard contact and i was reluctant to believe that pitchers don't have any control over this and i'm seeing that based on his the where the places that he commands the pitches his pitches he's allowing he's he's not a lot necessarily allowing but exposing himself to the possibility of allowing a lot of hard contact, which he has been doing. Um, and that makes me scared for him based on the fact that his expected WOBA is really high. He seemed to outperform that last year. He's the kind of guy who profiles based on all of this anecdotal evidence as someone who will be worse than his ERA estimators. And that scares me as investing uh, a second round pick in him. Uh, I think he's an excellent pitcher. I know people are very defensive of Shane Bieber. I really like him. But I think he just continues to present one too many red flags for me. And so anyway, I'm going on a tangent, but you know, I'm seeing just again anecdotal evidence of these guys who perform or or, or who have metrics that describe their performance in ways that we are observing it and struggling to kind of reconcile mentally. Guys who continue to lead us on or continue to um, defy our expectations. We're kind of honing in on some of those those reasons why they continue to do that and so i'm going to keep pulling on that thread until it completely unravels or ties into a knot you're listening to baseball hq radio patrick david with uh, alex chamberlain from rotographs fangraphs and alex during the season we ask our experts to talk about players oh no it's not during the season yet is it oh yeah it is now it just started (laughs) hang on we're very close yeah you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Alex Chamberlain from Fangraphs at Rotographs. And Alex, the season has just got started. We ask our experts to talk about players 
whom you think will be boons and banes for the rest of the fantasy baseball season. Anything that grabs your attention doesn't have to be uh, super analytical or anything, but you can be if you want, of course. Uh, let's start with your boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners for the abbreviated 2020 season, starting in the American League. Who's a hitter who could be a boon? Yeah, so I, I have, I think if you follow my brand, so to speak, you know that I'm a, a Nelson Cruz guy. Um, I like Mike Moustakas. I like Justin Upton. There's a bunch of guys at uh, Brett Gardner. There's a bunch of guys at certain ADPs that I, I kind of habitually target every year. But for me this year, I think it might be um, Tommy LaStella, um, which I you know I never would have said in a past life. But um, he had the kind of 2019 where I feel like you can't fake it, where he hit twice as many home runs and 200 at-bats than he did the previous five or six years. So um, he is a guy that I'm looking at, and also Cameron Mabin, who... Again, I mentioned the Yankees seem to pick up on him. He had some really interesting uh, expected stats, so to speak, last year, and he's playing for a team that's terrible. It should give him an extremely long leash to just be who he is. And, and, and you know, he's a really low ADP, um, so there's really no risk. And he's not going to be, you know, he's not going to make or break your season, but he should be really good depth for a lot of teams that need some light power and, and speed. You know, I thought I think I read a story. I don't remember where, uh, and I don't remember when, but it was fairly recently about Cameron Mabin, and uh, he was talking about how the Yankees basically, when they got him, got him on into the, into the organization, they said, "Look, we don't care if you strike out; just swing as hard as you can all the time, and good things will happen." And sure enough, I mean, so maybe that's one of the things they're figuring out: exit velocity is king, right? As far as right. that goes, so the Yankees uh, maybe, like you said. They are figuring things out maybe as fast as or faster than uh, some other teams. Uh, in the yeah. National League, who's a boon hitter for you? Um, so one one guy that I've really hitched my, my cart to is Josh Rojas, but he doesn't necessarily have a full-time job. He was one of the, uh, in my opinion, one of the best hitters in AA and AAA last year. Just absolutely phenomenal. He got traded from the Astros to the Diamondbacks, and I think there is a very precise reason why maybe both teams made or included him in that swap. Um, a, a very serious power speed threat, but in light of him maybe not playing full time, I I have been also hitching my cart to Trent Grissom uh, of the of the Padres, formerly of the Brewers. Um, his AAA and AA last year were otherworldly. I mean, he he could be a huge, uh, maybe even like an Austin Meadows type five five tool uh, or five category threat um, this year. Um, and it sounds like he has a lock on full playing time. At the very worst, he'll be platooned sometimes, but he should be in the, the lineup at least five times a week. And a very outside the top 400, I think. Over to the mound, Alex. Uh, who's an American League pitcher you think should be a boon? Oh, so, I mean, I'll always say Kenta Maeda. He's my favorite. Um, Rich Hill, obviously, is recouping some value now that he is coming back from injury. I will always love him as well. But I think someone who's really interesting that I, again, I would never have admitted prior to this year is Dylan Bundy um, and I think you know it's it's just interesting to me that he has some good stuff but he for the longest time has been pitching in one of the worst parks to some of the worst catchers there is more than just a park element here he had two of the worst framing catchers last year and I just think you give him someone who's slightly above average you give him a park who's somewhat about uh, just slightly above average and maybe he will just be slightly above average. Um, and so, again, I'm not investing too heavily in him, but he's a really interesting like sixth starter that could finally do something more than we've seen him do and finally live up to some of that old expectation. 
I was going to say, he's been a guy who has long had expectations. Every year, somebody's touting Dylan Bundy, and every year he goes out there and doesn't live up to those expectations. But, yeah, there are situations where, you know, you you could put Sandy Koufax in that Baltimore Orioles situation, and maybe he doesn't look quite as dominating as he did. Right. Over right. to the National League, who's a Boone pitcher? So I think one of the ones that I've been trying to be more audible about is Joe Musgrove, and I, I don't think he's... He's kind of a wide awake sleeper. I think people have always liked him. Um, he's he's kind of had a he's had a hard time actually proving us right. And I think this year is finally it because I you know there was evidence at the end of last year that he really added a lot of velocity and his outcomes greatly improved. And and this spring slash summer that velocity is stuck around. So um, he's definitely someone to invest in at around ADP two hundred. Zach Gallen. There's not a lot of like true breakout opportunities this year, but Zach Gallen should be one of those guys who um you know we we look at next year and he'll be among our our second uh or our our sp2 sp3 selections and then also julio urias from the dodgers looks like he true based on last year absolutely on the cusp of a breakout i have been getting a lot of him um or i had been uh, prior to uh, covid but um you know really trying to invest heavily in him i think he has uh, a great opportunity to uh, begin his breakout in earnest. Alex Chamberlain's Boons, Tommy Lastella and Cameron Mabin, uh, Josh Rojas and Trent Grissom, Dylan Bundy of the Angels with honorable mentions to Kenta Maeda and Rich Hill, and F- Joe Musgrove of Pittsburgh, Zach Callen of Arizona, Julio Urias of the Angels. Uh, let's move over to the Baines. These are guys about whom, of course, you think listeners should be cautious. And again, we'll start in the American League. Who's a hitter you want no part of this year? Um, I have been avoiding Jose Altuve. Um, I don't have a strong reason behind it other than when I was doing some of my launch angle tightness research, and that was from a few months ago. He was someone who suddenly in 2019 had a really bad case of not being able to tighten up his launch angle um, and maybe that's injury related but at the same time I'm scared of it being a skills concern um, an erosion of skills and it's something I have to look more into something that I never did so something I just you know I just chose to avoid him and not cause myself the headache maybe it'll come back to bite me but probably not um, but just that combined with the fact that he's not running anymore made me a little bit cautious and I'd rather just invest in someone else I you know I'm not going to lose sleep over him having a great season. Good for him. Um, you know, I'm just going to, I'll take uh, JD Martinez or something in that area instead. Who's a Bane National League hitter? I was looking at the ADP and I don't really have one, um, but I was, I think it might be Bo Bichette. And it's not because of all the stuff that's been going on Twitter with the puns about his name. Um, I just, you know, he's going to be good. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit wary of the outcomes that we saw last year being repeatable. Um, he's not going to hit 30 home runs. Um, he ran a lot less than he did in the minors, and that could just be an opportunities thing. That could be a coaching thing. Um, maybe that comes back, but I'm just I'm I'm just wary that he he's more like a a 2010 270 guy than or even a 260 guy than he currently appears to be, and so. Again, he's going to be good. I don't care to have him in the fifth round. I'll just, again, I'll pick, I'll pick someone else there. Over to the mound again, who's an American League pitcher who could be a bane for you? So I think maybe the obvious answer, because of the spoiler, is Shane Bieber. Um, I just, I haven't been investing a lot in those second round arms to begin with, so it's not like I'm taking 
Mike Clevenger instead or Jack Flaherty instead or Steven Strasburg instead. I haven't really been getting any of those guys, but if I had to choose among those four, Bieber would be lowest for some of the reasons I described. I was also looking at ADP and Trevor Bauer being close to the top 20, maybe top 25 starting pitches is kind of odd for me for a guy who has only one season below a four ERA. Um, so I, you know, I, he's just kind of nominally included here because I, I still don't really understand the appeal. I think we're more enamored with him than we should be. Alex Chamberlain's Baines, Jose Altuve, Bo Bichette, Shane Bieber, and Trevor Bauer. Alex, tell our listeners where they can keep up with Alex Chamberlain. You can find me at Rotograph still. That's all I'm all the places I'm writing at right now. And um, on Twitter at Dolph Haldhagen. And I always say that I'm not going to spell it. Um, if you find it, you earn it. Otherwise, uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter, Dolph Haldhagen. And that's all for right now. All right, Alex, uh, this was just a great session. I was looking forward to talking with you, and I'm glad you were able to join us. I hope we can have you back again later on in this short season. Thanks, Patrick. I appreciate you having me back on. It was a lot of fun. Alex Chamberlain writes for Rotographs. That's at the Fangraphs website. We'll take one last break here so I can go get my mid-podcast COVID test and when we return our Baseball HQ commentaries. Hey, taxi and extra innings coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Let me say something about greenies. First of all, greenies were not performance enhancers. At the best, they allowed a guy with a hangover or somebody who didn't get any sleep that night to be more alert, and he was able to play up to his normal ability. So they were performance enablers. They were not performance enhancers. They did not that did not make him a better player than he ordinarily would. That's the difference between amphetamines and these uh, uh, human growth hormones and, and steroids. I'm, 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 not, I'm not saying that's okay. I, I think there should be a ban on amphetamines, too, because they're not healthy. But they, they have to be put into a different category uh, you know, than, than the uh, human growth hormones. They're, they're probably something a little bit better than a cup of coffee in terms of the stimulation that you get. So I think you... Baseball needs to make a distinction there. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. COVID test was negative, by the way, and I'm not kidding. It really was. So it's time for our regular commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up. And leading off, it's Hey Taxi, a commentary on players who are on Major League Baseball's taxi squads, but who might get enough playing time and production to make them worthy of consideration for spots on your rosters. So let's hail this cab with a look at San Diego outfielder Edward Olivares. And here with the news, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Hey, taxi! Beep, beep. What do you think of Edward Olivares? It's been said that he covers more real estate than Zillow, at least in the outfield. Well, we said it. And Zillow might be a stretch. But Edward Olivares has speed and can cover more outfield grass than fertilizer. Yeah, you get the point. Edward Olivares has speed. He ranked third in stolen bases in the AA Texas League in 2019. That's pretty fast for a sod poodle. Wow. And he batted 283 with 18 home runs. Wait, whoa! You mean he can hit for average, steal bases, and, wait for it, hit for power? Yep, faster than you can say sod poodle. Let's put it this way. Edward Olivares stole almost twice as many bases as Dylan Carlson, who stole 18 in 108 games at Double A in 2019, and Edward Olivares blasted 18 home runs, three behind Dylan Carlson's 21. Plus, the batting averages were comparable. 281 for Dylan Carlson, 283 for Edward Olivares in 2019. 
More importantly, it appears that Edward Olivares has made the opening day roster and Dylan Carlson did not. So hey, taxi, beep beep, meter's running. Edward Olivares is waiting. Pick him up. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his Hey Taxi commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about opening days, and I'm spelling that with a Z, or a Z if you're in the U.S. Like all of you, I couldn't wait to tune in opening day. The Yankees and the reigning champs, what more was left to say? A little odd, a big league game with no one in the park, and then it rained so hard that someone should have built an ark. And then out west, a rare event, two former MVPs on just one team, so no surprise, they won the game with ease. But yes, surprise, the game's big star, Twas Kike, stole the show, while Bellinger and Mookie had some time to count their dough. I'm not sure how I like the ploy of cutouts filling seats, and I wonder, do the cutouts overpay for paper eats? They look too flat. They should have tried Korean baseball's measure by using surplus mannequins and dolls for sexual pleasure. Another trick they're trying is to pipe in real sound. It sounded fake and not in sync with action on the ground. Here's a thought to make us think it's real fans we're hearing. Gather fans on Google Meets and use some real cheering. But these are quibbles. Picking nits. I'm carping. Splitting hairs. Baseball's back. We're watching games. The rest of it, who cares? For baseball fans, the games are back. We need no other reason to put aside our small critiques and just enjoy the season. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Henry Gibson. No, actually, I'm Patrick Davitt, extra innings commentator and 1960s cultural references provider at BaseballHQ.com. And if it's baseball musings and some silliness you seek, Extra Innings Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 24th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 20 of the 2020 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday full edition, Alex Chamberlain from Rotographs, which you can find at the Fangraphs website. Alex, a top-class baseball researcher, and as you heard, a genuinely interesting guy. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, and our Hey Taxi commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Extra Innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to wherever you catch your pod, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, iTunes, whatever. Leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. That really helps us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday full edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Enjoy the season. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. 
Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.